Hello, and welcome to Music Therapy and Beyond. On today's episode, we are privileged to have music therapist Dr. Andrew Knight joining us in conversation. He is an associate professor of music and music therapy at Colorado State University. He's also a content creator for The Technook. The Technook is a collaborative technology resource for music therapy. This website serves to teach not only how to use technology, but how it can afford meaningful experiences in clinical practice. You can find content on everything from audio engineering to mobile applications to podcasting and much more. To learn more, go to technook.co. That is technook.co. Now let's get to today's episode. Welcome to the Music Therapy and Beyond podcast. I'm thrilled to have you. And uh, what I would love to do is to read your bio, your official bio quickly, and then I'll give you a chance to kind of add to that bio and talk a little more about yourself and kind of what you're up to currently, if that's okay. Okay. All right. So we'll be formal here for a second. So Dr. Andrew Knight holds a bachelor's degree in percussion performance with a jazz emphasis from the University of Wisconsin Lacrosse, a music therapy equivalency and master's degree from the University of Minnesota, and a PhD in educational foundations and research from the University of North Dakota, which is where my husband went for his journalism degree. <laughs> uh, Dr. Knight has research interests in substance use disorders in adults and early childhood social and emotional developmental issues. He directs the Parkinson's Disease Vocal Exercise Group in collaboration with the Parkinson's Support Group in Larimer County and is a Music Together Within Therapy provider. His research has been published in the Journal of Music Therapy and other journals, and he serves as associate editor for book reviews for the Journal of Music Therapy. He's a former president of the Midwest region of the American Music Therapy Association and is on the AMTA Assembly of Delegates. And he co-edited the 2018 edition of the Introduction to Music Therapy textbook, which many of us are familiar with. So I would love for you to tell us a little more about yourself, because that's the some of the important stuff, but I'm sure there's more that we could know about you. So tell mm. us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, my my favorite part of putting that that book together, actually, the intro book, was when um, Alicia, Claire, and Blythe Lagasse and I, we were you know, because we've got to take care of the content part of things. But, you know, my favorite part is actually the introduction where I, I suggested like, why don't we do, we probably need like a get to know you uh, of the, about us and why we came to do this and, 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 and all that. And so um, I had a, I had a, I think a pretty typical story. And I think Blythe has a pretty typical story, you know, about how we, you know, we were musicians and we wanted to help people. We started looking around and everything. She explains kind of, she has a cool story in her intro up up how she found KU and uh, how she met Alicia actually for the first time. Mm -hmm. I had a story where I was uh, a, a percussion performance major and I was spending hours and hours, you know, practicing and I just got sick of caring so much about how my left ring finger was performing on 13 stroke rolls on the snare drum and thinking there's got to be something more more uh interesting that i can 
you know, do with my life uh, than worry about that sort of minutia, I guess. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but I was minoring in psychology at the time. So that's kind of, that's how my marriage of music and psychology came together to, to help me understand what music therapy is. And we're also doing these, um, and we're also doing these auditions. This is the time of the year that we all audition, all of our students, uh, especially undergrads, grad equivs. We've got a PhD program at CSU. So we're talking to all these different people. We're just asking them all these questions over and over. And mm-hmm. it, uh, it is interesting how, how many times like I, I hear about somebody say, like, I don't know, I think I found out about music therapy when I was 16 and I'm just like, jealous out of my mind like i could yeah how and i'm i started asking questions that are off the script like wait what who told you about this when you were 16 where did that come from like who is this person an associate's degree by the time i found out about the degree i was like man i'm so behind yeah exactly but that because my path was a grad equivalency program obviously so i was like well i've got performance i I better you know buy a cheap guitar and figure out how i'm gonna do this (laughs) Um, so that I can uh, stay on top of, you know, competencies and all that. Um, but people, but the most important thing about what you read there is the, the last, the other person in the intro, people might be looking it over it, or looking over it because you might not read the intro of, of a book like that. Um, right. But you all need to read Alicia Clare's story about how she came into the profession because <laughs> that is the best of the three of us. Oh, yeah. 100%. Even though she's our elder statesperson of music therapy, obviously. But she uh, she definitely capped us all. And, and I won't I don't think maybe spoiling it now, but but if you've got that book, you need to check out the intro and you need to read what Alicia had to say about how she got into music therapy because she tells it with some flair, we'll say. She tells everything with flair. It was such a That's thrill a to get to learn from her <laughs> at KU because just listening to her lecture or just having a conversation in her office, just like, man, you're such a good storyteller. Like she just knows mm-hmm. how to bring something to life with her words. So she's a yeah. really inspiring speaker if you ever get the chance um to our listeners if you ever get the chance to listen to her it's pretty amazing agreed mm-hmm. awesome so what are you up to right now is teaching anything else going on you're at colorado state currently correct yeah i'm at colorado state and um a couple of i mean i think it's we're also at this are we post COVID phase? Like we're all just asking ourselves these question marks, but one, probably one of the neatest things is on Friday mornings for uh, several semesters. Now I haven't been able to do what I just got in the habit of doing, which was early childhood music therapy sessions back at our early childhood center here on campus. And before that I, I worked at university of North Dakota and we had similar groups there with toddlers with language impairments. And so I've just been, I've been in that groove for so long. And then I went away (laughs) or then I had to go away because of COVID. And then my face was just, you know, four feet tall on a projector Mm -hmm. screen across campus. And you're, we are all doing our technology and our telehealth stuff, but you know, I'm three weeks into it now and I just can't believe that I'm back doing in-person music therapy again and how it really did came come back. Like I was kind of, I actually remember telling my practicum students, like I'm kind of nervous for those little <laughs> four-year-olds to walk in here. I said, I don't know. I, I'm just not used to it, but, but boy, yeah. after we feel, I think we finished a hello session or hello song and, and it was, it was just, you know, the proverbial um, riding a bike kind of mm-hmm. thing. So I'm really kind of pleased as, as to how that transitioned back has been going for sure. Um, 
And then another big project that I really like, that I'm really happy in talking about is a, is a group at a, a company called Able Arts Work out in Long Beach, California. And they've been doing work at a Head, care, uh, head Start facility um, that is, uh, that is um, like heavy, heavily uh, Latinx population uh, out in Long Beach and early childhood and trying to figure out how we can infuse music therapy, but hopefully in the right way. Um, but and by right way, it's like, what is best for that culture, both at the school, but also the area and the city and everything and trying not to just say, we're going to do music therapy for, you know, uh, just the way that we would do it anywhere else instead of, mm-hmm. and, and it's really hard to do because research sometimes demands, especially when you're doing quantitative, uh, quantitative, um, uh, data gathering, it really demands a kind of, um, Protocolized approach, and we're trying to break that in in a, in a couple of ways, and make sure that we're right sizing this in the same time as we're measuring it, um, yeah. and and doing it obviously with me, not <laughs> not around, so it's not like you know there can be a ton of one to one interaction with the interventionists and with with some of the other people who are helping out and gaining the trust and the relationships with the parents and caregivers and early childhood professionals. Um, mm-hmm. So it's a really fascinating series of dynamics. And I guarantee there's no, there's no PhD course in research that actually mm-hmm. prepares you for understanding how to do any of this stuff. So, no. so it is, you know, whether COVID or not, like this whole, that whole, that whole thing is flying by the seat of your pants and most research is that's uh, I think that can be the allure of it for for some people so that's a project that I like thinking about and talking about weekly these days that's really cool I mean you go in with a plan but then you you have to be flexible it's the only way you can really move forward because you don't know what's going to happen and we've been talking about introducing some groups in the community um with a couple different minorities and looking more at sort of a resource oriented approach to just sort of let them sort of lead the group and tell us what, what is it that they would want from that and how would they incorporate music from their culture, as opposed to assuming that we know what they would need because we definitely don't. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's nice to have that flexibility and that it's not research, but then I'm also so sad that the data that we have is just going to live in our anecdotal you know like in our google drive basically and it's not going to go anywhere so Mm -hmm. you know there's good and bad to both sides whether it's formal research or whether we're just doing the work you know there's drawbacks either way but there's also a lot of excitement and trying to figure that out i love puzzles and just figuring out okay that didn't work so let's try something else and this isn't going to work anymore so what can i do now so Mm -hmm. that's one of the things i love about being a therapist and just problem solving all the time and being flexible it makes it a lot of fun yeah, that goes to like you're saying about the the puzzles and and the phrase that that we like to use is you know just breaking it like figure let's go ahead and figure out how to break it because but it takes it takes a lot of courage it takes a lot of vulnerability and that's not always in that's not always in high supply I think uh, for us especially when there's external factors that that can you know that can manifest themselves in ways that really can be seen as a threat by music therapists, especially newer music therapists. You know, the the zero to five year kind of thing, you know, I, I don't know that there's any research about the year five necessarily, but, you know, mm-hmm. as, at least with the students we have here, you know, I think um, I think that's just the number that comes up. Like, just what is the, what are you looking at in five years? How can you even figure out what 
what you're going to be doing on a day-to-day basis without even knowing what job you're going to have. And even if you do have an idea of what Mm -hmm. job you want to have or creating a private practice for yourself or whatever it might be, you know, sometimes the, uh, sometimes just doing the hypothetical experiment can be really fun, uh, for me at least to cue them or to prompt them to, to think like, I don't know what, like, uh, like I was just teaching a songwriting class. Like, I don't know exactly how you're going to use this. But let's try a couple of things right now in class. And my hope is like there might be somebody that would just walks into your clinic five years from now and, you know, and your clinical decision making is going to lead you to thinking, should I try this particular technique that I don't feel great about right now here in mm-hmm. 2022? <laughs> but maybe you'll feel just a little bit better. Just a, You just need to be just a little bit un- enough better at it that you feel confident and putting yourself out there and demonstrating or modeling that vulnerability to somebody who might be walking into the clinic and might really benefit from this technique. Yep. I remember thinking that having the perfectly planned out session with no disruption, everything went according to plan. That was my definition of success Mm. as a music therapy student slash brand new music therapist. And then you realize how terribly wrong that actually is that Mm -hmm. I found this quote for today's conversation that I thought was just really um, relatable. The absence of misbehavior does not necessarily indicate the presence of learning. So just because it went smoothly does not mean that you actually accomplished what you meant to accomplish. And the pushback could even say, um, if I did have this session that went so well, or in my estimation, in my subjective view as the therapist, this session went so well, here's how I think it went well, because they were all doing this, that, or the other Mm -hmm. thing. Um, and then, you know, then you're left with like, well, but as a therapist, should I have, maybe I should have challenged more. And if I'm not challenging for certain objectives or if I'm not challenging some thoughts or some preconceived notions, you know, depending on what population you might be working with, then am I, what couldn't, could that have actually made the session even better, um, to, to add that kind of confrontation, to add the, like I said, the vulnerability and that kind of thing later. Yep. You learn a lot from those moments, and I think it really leads nicely into sort of what inspired us to have this conversation today. And originally, we had a mutual acquaintance, Haley, and she and I were talking about just moving away from the language of compliance in terms of how we write our goals and sort of shedding this idea that having the perfect session or having no behaviors was actually a good thing, when in reality, it really doesn't mean what you think it means. And Mm -hmm. I'm really curious to sort of hear you talk about what you've observed over the years in teaching, because you've been doing this for a while. And I'm curious what's changed for you and maybe where it started in terms of how you teach students to write goals and think about success and progress in a session. Yeah, it's a, it's, it was, it's a fascinating little thought experiment too, because there is there's the way that I've been teaching it. There's the, you know, my change in this is my 14th year teaching. So there's, there's that evolution. There's what I remember even learning. And then there's my, and how that compares to even my perception of clinicians who are doing this on a lot more of a, you know, daily basis. And what I hear from them, if I'm, you know, teaching a CMTE or, um, we have a graduate online program, and the online master's program at CSU is entirely board-certified music therapists. So mm-hmm. I get I get to hear an awful lot about you know where their practices 
are at uh, when they come to CSU or when they decide, yeah, I want to get that graduate degree. I'm going to, I'm going to see how that compares to what I've been doing or what I was taught to do and how different mm-hmm. or not different uh, <laughs> it might be. Um, yeah. So there's lots of different ways to look at. And I think, I think the evolution is, or that I'm seeing, especially is especially prominent in kind of the texts that are coming out or that seem to be used um, I'm thinking of Eric Walden right now, uh, Dr. Eric Walden at uh, University of the Pacific. We had him here pre-COVID, uh, and we had him really, he was talking about assessment so much mm. because everything that is that is goals and objectives, it all has to be birthed by the assessment process, mm-hmm. right? And the idea that he created this book, he's got his own assessment book, but then he's also got one that he, that he co-wrote uh, or co-edited, I can't remember quite right now off the top of my head um but the idea that that we have that that is the new way of looking at assessments and a ton of assessments i think has changed everything for how goals and objectives can be looked at because it is Mm -hmm. assessment is the lens that we get to goals and objectives Mm -hmm. and there are so many more international perspectives uh, in particular i think um and there has been so much uh, I don't know a better word, but like cross-pollination uh, internationally. So we've got so many, uh, we've got so many non-United uh, States residents, as an example, coming and have been teaching in the states for a while, mm-hmm. um, and then vice versa. We also have, um, you know, I'm thinking about like uh, uh, people like Claire Getty. She's been teaching. Yeah. Uh, she was a, a KU grad, and now she's teaching in Scandinavia. You know, so I think it's just kind of fascinating how that cross-pollination has really taken hold in the assessment realm and therefore assessments have been pushing out goals and objectives that are that or the way that we're thinking about goals and objectives in such a more open and broad way to even even to the point that you and i can have a discussion where we're thinking about compliance like Mm -hmm. i don't know how many people would have felt comfortable talking about (laughs) non-compliance based objective writing 10 years ago 15 years ago 30 years ago if you're just thinking about like you know when when amta unified in the late 90s and all that so i think there's there's that historical context i think there's this international context uh cross-cultural context i think all of those things have are, are the are the biggest drivers of this change um like i said to the point where assessment looks so different and so widely varied um, that the way that somebody decides that they're going to undertake that process is usually the way that they end up um, uh, kicking out the goals and objectives that they decide to use or not use. And to that extent, that's been the thing that's also helped a lot of us in education evolve as well because I I can't speak, I, I don't know who's teaching at every single one of the 80-something, 90 now, I guess, universities, but there's been a lot of people um, taking some of those taking that evolution uh, into those new um, those new universities and that means new professionals yeah. that are going to try to do some different things and so even if they are coming out and they're confronted with thinking that they've got to go into compliance-based objectives maybe there's maybe there's still something that's even ringing in the back of their head that as soon as they kind of build up their confidence as soon as they start feeling a little bit more comfortable mm-hmm. in the job that they're doing that maybe they'll start suggesting hey could we consider 
changing our program or the way that we're going to do things a little different. And maybe they'll find like-minded individuals interprofessionally, which is another big change in music therapy too, how much more interprofessional care is actually happening as opposed to, like I said, one or two decades ago. Yeah. I mean, I don't know about you, but both of my training programs were more behavioral. So that was really what I was trained in was like, you've got everything specified and laid out and here's your plan and here's what you're going to do. And you have a task analysis and you break everything down Mm -hmm. and it's very comforting as a therapist to have a plan and to go in and think this is what I'm going to do. And this is what the outcome is going to be. And I'm also trained in um, NICU music therapy, which has that same idea that I'm going to do these steps and then this is going to happen. And in, in the NICU, it really does happen almost every single time, which is sort of mind blowing to think about. But then the more diverse my clinical work became over the years, the more I was sort of seeing like, well, this doesn't always add up. It doesn't always work to do it this way. And there has to be some flexibility and context and really looking at the client more holistically in terms of what they need, what skills they're lagging. And I took Dr. Lagazzi's uh, neurodevelopment CMT last year, and my boss and I just threw out all of our assessments for our private practice. We're like, (laughs) we're throwing out the book. I don't want to keep any of this now (laughs) because we're not addressing all of the sensory issues in our assessment process. We're not looking at what they need rather than what the parents are saying they want to have accomplished in therapy. We really need to like take a whole fresh look at this. And I don't know if you've heard of... um, Dr. Bruce Perry's neurosequential model. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that one talks about lagging skills a lot. And I just think we have so much more information um, at our fingertips to really understand and put a fresh lens on how we assess clients and how we establish these goals, which is really exciting and also overwhelming because it doesn't necessarily line up with the way things actually happen. Um, in clinical settings that are beyond our control, like in a school setting, for example. Um, yeah, and the term overwhelm is probably, that's the, that, I think that's the one that we have to watch out for, especially in the educational programs uh, that we have here. And like you mentioned, the two, your two um, um, programs have, having this behavioral approach. And, and I, I wonder if we're on our way to finally, you know, I think there's a lot of us that have to get those ideas out of our heads, obviously, mm-hmm. but um, but you know, nobody, you know, hopefully nobody's looking at Colorado state, uh, university students and just thinking to themselves, here's somebody that only does, you know, approach X or they, this, this is the only way that they must do that because our, you know, our approach should be as different as name another university that you think is diametrically opposed mm-hmm. in terms of philosophy to whatever you think CSU is, mm-hmm. and then go ahead and just take two of our seniors and have them in, uh, you know interview for the same internship mm-hmm. you know anonymously and not really know where they're coming from and i wonder if 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 the biases are the things that are actually telling us this student is coming from this program therefore they are you know whatever they are because i think mm-hmm. our systems are or our programs are finally um doing a lot more uh integration in the way that um if you I'm remembering back, maybe it was 10 years ago now, if I think, and I don't remember, Ken Brusha gave the keynote at an AMTA conference and his whole thing was the integral approaches um, that we're, we're we, it's time to put everything together. And some, and some part of me makes me wonder if he's just staring at all the people who are kind of diehard NAMT and some people who are diehard AAMT. And he's like, listen, you two, <laughs> like, like we were, you know, like we're siblings who just weren't getting yeah. along. 
listen, you two, this isn't going to, it's not going to be like this anymore. No. <laughs> this isn't good for everyone that we're trying to work with. Also, it doesn't look really good for the other, you know, uh, professions who are trying to work with us because they're like, I don't, I don't understand how this, how this is supposed to go together. No. Um, so I think the further, the more we get into that integral approach, mm-hmm. um, the less we'll have students like you and I coming out and just knowing like, yep, here's a system that I came out of. It was this approach or it was this philosophical orientation mm-hmm. or whatever the, the term might be. Yeah. We actually have a, um, music therapist on our staff who was trained in a more music centered approach <clears> and <throat> our, clinic was her first job out of internship. Mm. And so it was such an interesting um, journey for her in terms of like, wow, the way you guys traditionally do therapy is so different than the way that I was trained to do therapy. And it was really important to her, you know, not to lose that and to still be able to have a lot of that. And it's just been really fascinating to just watch how we are all able to work together and we're all able to use the tools that we have and the skills that we have. And it's not really about our approach. It's about looking at the client and what they need and okay, they're not responding to this more structural contingent kind of approach to therapy. Maybe they need more improvisation and more just Mm -hmm. call and response to be able to find their fit in music therapy and so we have that fluidity within our team to just go back and forth and try different things until we find what's right for the client. And that's really the ideal situations. So I think yeah. if we move towards like our assessments and our goal writing, also following that suit of just staying very open and very curious and really trying to understand what's going on and how we can help instead of being attached to any certain philosophy or approach or system. I think that's really exciting. That was that was said by a therapist right there. Yeah. <laughs> I think when you said, "Okay, so you know," because I can hear my I I can hear my therapist saying something like, "All right, so get, let's get curious about that, and let's not be attached to you know whatever whatever that idea in the past is." So it's like <clears throat> it's like you are you're the therapist for the profession now, and you're just saying like maybe let's get curious about why you know, especially because you did the you did the important step of. You know, you created like you created your practice and everything around these ideas. You could have easily created your ideas and your or practice and everything around those, uh, around even a more strict behavioral idea, mm-hmm. and therefore this this person comes in, uh, you know, saying or or having promoted a music centered music therapy philosophy, and then go, that's not the person I want to hire right now, mm-hmm. as opposed to saying, actually, that is the type of person I want to hire. I'm kind of interested about how this person might you know, address clients very differently than me, or they could, they could see service users in my practice that are, that have different needs that maybe I wouldn't be able to address in the same way. Or even if you want to put a judgment on it, maybe not even successfully sometimes, Mm -hmm. but again, I'm not going to be attached to, I'm not going to be attached to this one way of thinking that I had heard from a book in the nineties or whenever the books that you bought came out. And then instead I'm going to be curious about what the possibilities are in front of it. So there's a, our, you know, kind of personal mindfulness challenge for all of us. Right. Well, none of us like to beat our heads against a wall. Like if something's not working, I would much rather just open it up and think about all the possibilities than just continue doing the same thing and just hoping that it starts working at some point, because that's a really futile activity. It really doesn't help you or the client. And it just ends up burning you out because you're not seeing progress and you're working really hard 
And then you start to get bored of what you're doing because you're doing the same thing all the time. And variety is really what has kept me in the profession for 15 years is Mm. learning something new, trying something new, and just always staying open and curious about how else we could do this. So, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a tight rope to walk for educators to to be able to communicate that kind of a message too, especially to not newer students, but like students who are just like, I thought I had this figured out with practicum or I'm about to go out to internship. How am I still being challenged? Or maybe I don't know what I'm doing, you know, cause we might tell ourselves our own stories. Like, yeah, I've been doing this 15 years. I still think like, oh, I don't, I don't think he should be a music therapist anymore. <laughs> like CBMT is just going to show up in the clinic and just go like, Nope, not anymore. <laughs> it's like slash up the certificate right in front of you. Like that was, that was very badly done. That was, there was nothing improvisatory about what you try, just tried to do or whatever it might be. Um, because uh, some, because they have to be open to hearing that the message of failure isn't you're bad. The message, or and to feel shame about that. But the message of failure is, all right, that didn't work. Figure out the figure out the new way, or get curious about what might be possible, mm-hmm. you know, uh, in in the future. Um, but when they're under when they're under constraints from the you know, the, the families that are trying to contract with them or the school district that's trying to contract with them when those external constraints, though, you know, I completely have a ton of empathy for people that are under those constraints and realizing like, uh, what do I do in this situation? Because now it's not just what I think. It's also about what they think of my data or my output, my outcomes or whatever it might be. Right. That was one of the things that Um, I wanted to address today because I'm currently working in a very specific educational population and the IEPs in that setting look very different than they do in a public school setting. Mm -hmm. And so there is a lot of emphasis on compliance and having a quiet classroom and having children following the routines. And so a lot of the goals are written that way because ultimately that's if everyone had disruptive behaviors all day, what learning would happen? But that's just the way everyone's been trained to look at it is, Mm -hmm. well, what we need to do is to get everything under control and then we can get into our routines. And that's how we're going to start learning is by engaging in those routines and that repetition and reviewing these concepts over and over again. But if someone's pushing their desk over or if somebody is screaming or somebody's really dysregulated, then we can't do that. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's a really hard line to walk because I'm assigned to the goals, right? I have to take data on those goals. I have to find a way to address the goals that I'm given, but I'm also seeing the behavior in the classroom and seeing that someone is very dysregulated and definitely not going to be able to learn. Mm -hmm. And so I spent 20 of my 30 minute sessions, just doing sensory regulation with my clients because Mm -hmm. I want them to go back into the classroom and to be able to learn. And so it's been a process of just getting really creative with this is the goal that I was assigned. So how can I get the data that I'm required to get, but also help this client to achieve more well-being and independence while they're in school during the day? How can I help them to find ways to regulate themselves so that they can be part of the school system and be present for the entire day? And it's it's really, really challenging. It's incredibly yeah. challenging. Well, it's it's clear in even the language that we use too. I mean, it's a school system, but mm-hmm. it is an individualized education plan. Yeah. <laughs> how, well, how am I going to have something individualized in a systematized uh, uh, culture, right? Yeah. So just off the bat, wait a minute, 
am I looking at systemic things or am I looking at the most individualized? Because if you're talking about, you mentioned these behaviors, like flipping over a desk, that's probably, you know, I, it's not a hundred percent of the people that you're working with who are desk flippers, right? <laughs> people have different ways of expressing whatever is expressed, <laughs> whatever the need is, mm-hmm. whether it's sensory or it's emotion based or whatever is kind of fueling the flipping of the desk, you know, just to take the, that, you know, really extreme uh, example that you tossed out there too, mm-hmm. and just go like, okay, so an individualized plan for somebody who's a desk flipper, like, all right, well, how do I even start to address that, recognizing that this person is doing that and affecting the rest of the system, you know, that is around them? So, mm-hmm. like, at least at the start, at least at the start, let's make sure everyone <laughs> realizes how what a what a big hill you're already up against. That mm-hmm. you are that like what you just mentioned, I think, is really important. Just let's all make sure we have the awareness of how difficult you know, this truly is. I've got a really good friend who's a special educator here in the district and, and everything. And, and it's tough checking in with them sometimes, <laughs> you know, even if it's, uh, even if it's, you know, a holiday or, or just hanging out on the back deck or whatever, because, uh, because it, I can just, I can just see and I can hear it when he, the way he describes the work that he's doing, that it's just, mm-hmm. you know, IEP pull down menus, over and over and over again and and the parent meetings and trying to like how do you have the individual how can you have an individualized thing when you've got a pull down menu mm-hmm. you know it's so difficult for him to recognize that the kind of work and the kind of care that he's trying to provide um for these are high school students with developmental and intellectual disabilities that he's working with how do i do that in a system that doesn't that that doesn't um, really allow for that or or keep track of it in the way that makes most sense to him. Well, and IEPs are regulated, right? So you have to have a compliant IEP. If you're out of compliance, you're in trouble. So you have to follow the rules of an IEP in order to have the funding and to have all the services that you're supposed to have. And so it's really difficult to change some of it because so many things would have to change in order for that to work for everybody and to progress in the way that everyone else is progressing. Mm-hmm. So that's another really big challenge for the educators. I totally feel for their difficulty of like, well, this is this is the system I have. So yeah. I have I have to write something. And we write reports called present levels when we present our data in music therapy and we talk about the goals that we've been working on and we present um, any recommendations that we may have. And so what I've been trying to do lately, and I'm curious what you think about this, is I'm not changing the goal. But what I'm recommending is within this goal, here's the skills that I think they're actually working on. And here's what I would like to do in music therapy to support that skill and still continue to work towards that goal. So if someone needs help with transitions, well, what kind of transitions do they need help with? Usually the language is pretty general. Like they just need to transition from one thing to the next. Well, what does that really mean? Like, what are we trying to accomplish? What skill do they need to be able to to do that, to be able to transition? And so when I observed them, I saw that they were transitioning in the classroom just fine. There weren't any problems in the classroom. But as soon as they got out of the classroom, we had a problem. So I was like, okay, so we're talking about a macro transition. We're talking about going to the bus. We're talking about leaving to go to the gym. So why don't I just do my sessions in a different part of the building so that they have to practice a different kind of transition to come to my therapy session? And then I can still work on that goal but do it in a way that's really going to help them to work towards 
a really functional skill for themselves instead of sitting at the desk with them and not asking them to transition in a different way or to, to do anything different or novel, which is what typically happens if we have resistance to transition. It's a lot easier to just say, never mind, we're just going to do these micro transitions because they're a lot easier than those macro transitions. But I'm already seeing some big changes with just trying to provide the education about what's what skill is happening here? What are we actually needing to do for this person? Why do they need to be able to transition? Where are they transitioning to? And it turns out like they weren't able to get on the bus. They were very attached to a certain way of doing this. And that was sort of disrupting the whole system because they have to get everyone out the door in a certain amount of time. Mm -hmm. So if they can't get everyone on the bus, then that kid misses the bus and then their parents have to come pick them up. And there's a whole domino effect from from that. So it is actually an important goal for them. But yeah, I just, it was really interesting looking at that one and just trying to get really creative with it and figure out how to be helpful because I couldn't change the goal. I could make recommendations, but they probably weren't going to change the goal. So um, sorry, there wasn't really a question in there, but. <laughs> no, you were, you were saying like uh, you're, the, what you're bringing up in the words, I think is more important. So even though everything you said, like, like you said, maybe there wasn't a question there, but it's still really interesting to just kind of, um, not to make you nervous, but I was listening really intently to your words, you know, like, you know, some people are really into like qualitative research and every, every word matters and, yeah. and the terms that you're using and the terms that you're using are important because the, the only way, the only times you were using the word goal there was, I don't want to say negative necessarily, but you were just sort of referring to it like from afar, like it's this thing that's just present and I have to deal with it. But um, the word that you used more than that was need. Mm-hmm. And and then you were talking about what's the skill to address that need. So if we don't think about it as, you know, goals and objectives happen to be the happen to be the words that we're stuck with because that's right. the system mm-hmm. that we're in, or at least us in the States or, mm-hmm. you know, there, I'm sure there's lots of other places around the world, you know, internationally that, are, that have the word goal that right. seems to be attached to music therapy. Um, but really, like what people always do more, uh, and we don't do it well necessarily, I think, intrapersonally <laughs> or interpersonally is really have an examination of our needs. Yeah. And so, you know, the need here wasn't even... I, I like to think of needs as more universal than even just like uh, that teacher in that moment. I need to get this kid on the bus. If yeah. he doesn't get on the bus, then I'm going to have this parent issue or whatever. But just mm-hmm. to take that, just to take, take that little example as part of what you said about the transitions and whether we can, you know, again, whether we can uh, um, complete this really giant, th- this giant ask, which is how can I make the transfer or the generalizable skill of transitioning to music therapy and from music therapy to, 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 you know, the general classroom or whatever mm-hmm. the, the, the person is going to, how can I make that transfer into going out at the end of the day? Boy, that's, I mean, you've got, a, there's so many variables going on there in the first mm-hmm. place. So again, just being aware of like, that is a giant thing <laughs> that, that is enormous and would be such a, such a, a, a huge change. Um, if it were to actually move uh, in that direction of right. of uh, this person being a little bit having a little less attachment maybe to needing that one particular person, so instead there I use the word need again. So what's the need that is going unmet here? I think that's the question that we really want to ask. Yeah. You know, because if the goal is improving transitions, is there a need for stability? A need for 
some comfort mechanism. There's a need for something, but I don't want somebody to tell me that the need is something negative or something that we can't give somebody because I want to think more universally. And when you think universally about somebody's needs, I think it makes you able to have a lot more empathy for for that what that person is in the moment. I have a need. I have a need for comfort and safety as well. And I don't think I have the whatever diagnoses you know, this individual would have working at the center that you're, or the, the state facility that you're talking about. Yeah. But because I've got those needs, I can, em- I can empathize big time with that particular mm-hmm. example, with the person in your example. Yeah. And if I have the empathy, then I can start thinking, what would help me feel more comfort and safety? Mm-hmm. Now, now we've got universal needs and now as the therapist and the client, you know, the client may not even know it, but at least right. now I know that we're working together because we have this mutual understanding of what the universal need is uh, going on here. And you've, and then you said the, the next part. And then I figured like, there's, what is the skill? What's the, what's the thing that I can help? Because I don't know that this person can request that of me, you know, now that I've identified this need, but if I had to think about it. What skill do I think would would help them? And that's that's our job. That's where we're that's where what we're getting paid for. We're just mm-hmm. doing it with music. But everyone's trying to think about how do we help them figure out what skills they need, even though we don't know, or even though they don't know what skills they might ni- right. need, especially in this particular instance. Well, and something that happens a lot of times when we're talking about individuals, neurodivergent individuals, it happens a lot at home and in school that the more repetition and routine we provide, the more calm they seem to be, the more compliant they seem to be. And it is a positive to a certain extent, but there's a point of diminishing returns on that where then Mm -hmm. they get stuck and then doing new and novel things becomes increasingly difficult because their entire day becomes a routine where they do this and then this and then this and then this, and they do it that way every single time. And So I think that's one of the challenges that we come up against all the time. And that's why the goals sometimes just stay the same every single year. They just keep getting recycled Mm -hmm. and everybody just sort of gets stuck in this wheel because they do need a calm classroom. They do need a certain amount of compliance, but they're also missing this huge opportunity to help this person to build a new skill, to build cognitive flexibility, to be able to do more cognitively challenging tasks, um, and to be able to handle novel presentations of something out in the community that they're not used to without mm. um, really struggling. And so that's something that I'm thinking about all the time is I know that they have this routine and they've had this routine for years. So it's going to take a long time to mm-hmm. sort of work. So have I. That. Yeah, <laughs> we all have. Yeah, exactly. I have a lot of routines, <laughs> but nobody's luckily for me. I don't have anybody, you know, watching me between like 830 and 330 and trying to tell me how I need to stop doing those routines because I would be like, no, this is how I get in my car. Nope. This is how I t- decided I was going to drive <laughs> or I've been driving for 20 years. This is when I decided to put my blinker on. Why do I need to change right. that? <laughs> and uh, and again, like that's that's that goes back to your point of, you know, um, neurodiversity, um, that at least when we're thinking through that lens, we're not thinking about an us and them or a binary of, you know, typical and atypical. We're just thinking like, wait a minute, where am I on this kind of bigger spectrum or, or whatever you want to call it so that we can better have empathy. And even just what you did there, you switched the pronouns on us because then you, we were talking again, we were talking about, you know, a client, but then you're like, they need, Mm-hmm. To have this classroom, have you know the not 
calm and peaceful, but whatever those adjectives were that you use, like, you know, then we go, okay, so this is, this is what's best for the teacher then. Mm -hmm. Okay. Let's just be really honest about if we're doing things that are compliance based, are we doing it because that's in the best, best interest of that client? Or are we doing it because it's in our best interest or because I think if I can get them to sit down or whatever, then they're not going to attack me to try to strum my guitar. And well, that's on me. That's me. (laughs) I need to put that guitar somewhere else. Then Mm -hmm. that's not, I, you know, we're not writing an objective that says we'll not get up to strum guitar because (laughs) you know, that's, that's not something for them necessarily. That's for you. Well, and we're thinking too about, well, what if, what happens when they age out of the system? How do I work towards mm-hmm. something that's gen- generalized to community when they no longer have this routine and this place where we always do things this way and then and then in this way we don't have a bad day, whatever that means for that person. Yeah, but again, yeah, who's having bad days? And then right. <laughs> again, that's I think that's another vote for the universality of needs too because – Again, universally, we all have bad days and universally, we need safety and comfort and everything. And that is the thing that's going to transfer, not necessarily this little trick just to get them out of the room or get them to stop clinging to the teacher and get on the bus, you know, to use that example again. But the universality is, can I find people that I, that provide comfort to me and who I can trust and have safety with? That's what's going to be universe. That's what'll work when you're 21 and you age out of the the you know the school system yeah. depending on if you're you know if that's the age in your particular area of the world yeah being able to make connections with others is such an important skill for every human <laughs> we all need that skill. i would say that's the need that is like the, the need, the need yeah. is actually i have a need to have to mm-hmm. connect with other people right so the skills that i might use are the way that i talk to them or 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 you know, how I choose to interact verbally or non-verbally. Those are the skills that I'm going to do, but my need is still to connect. So how do I make sure I keep that at the center of my thinking? And that's where the music really works beautifully is we can mm-hmm. build that relationship mm-hmm. in a really natural way. And sometimes it still takes a while, but eventually we should see the benefit of that because the music brings that connection um, pretty quickly most of the time. And so I think... Yeah, it's just difficult because we can't totally throw out the language of compliance when we're in a school, but I'm really getting a lot of really good feedback and better relationships with the teachers from just providing this education about, well, I'm, I'm seeing that she really needs this. Like when I give this option in session, I'm seeing more interaction. I'm seeing more engagement. And when I do this, I'm not seeing that. And so- just kind of helping to hone in on what's actually going on for them and they may accept the feedback or they may not but I see them once a week they see them all day every day and they've been working with them for years and so we have a totally different relationship which makes it a little bit easier for me to come in and say this is what I've been observing when I pop in once a week I'm seeing something different and I just want to share it with you and maybe we can help this person um, to just figure out what they need because they're nonverbal. So they're not going to tell us what they need. So mm-hmm. how are we going to figure that out together? That's really great to hear that too. I mean, to, uh, especially because, <laughs> you know, there are our relationships with our clients, but they're heavily impacted by our, <clears throat> you know, our interprofessional relationships for sure. Mm-hmm. And, um, and especially you used another term that I think is really important. You're just saying observations, you know, nobody can dispute observations. They just have to be 
fact-based line 100 people on the street show them a video of what just happened do they all agree <laughs> that what y- what you just explained to this to the teacher actually factually happened mm-hmm. because when we when we start with that common understanding like all right there's the observation now now we can start to use our, our clinical minds and get into that get into that need-based thinking uh, and then go from there and really kind of another takeaway is like you said about using music in particular with creating the connection like if you can't, if you don't think that you can have totally avoid compliance-based anything, I'll just mm-hmm. make it open like that, maybe the best you can do is just delay it for as long as you can. <laughs> and maybe you can just have five or six weeks in the semester where you are not doing that. You're just focusing on connecting musically. Right. And you're going to do improvisation or you're going to write a song together or you're going to do some singing and some free movement to, 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 uh, and, and dance to, to some music uh, or something. And that will be fine. And, <laughs> and you can, again, you can, I think people can take your kind of little workaround like, yep, the goal is here. I'm just not going to think about the workaround. I'm going to think about um, here's the need. I'm going to work around the goal and I'm going to get to that skill part. I'm th- going to think more need skill, need skill, and focus on the engagement because the engagement is going to create the connection that you need mm-hmm. uh, so that there's some buy-in and trust um, in in the way that you have an interpersonal relationship with mm-hmm. whoever you're working with. It's a little bit scary sometimes because you can feel very exposed when other people are looking at your session. It might look like Oof, nothing yeah. is happening. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so it's really, you have this. Happy singing fun time. Yes, right, right. Like what are you, what are you even doing? Like you're just playing with her. I don't understand what's going on. <laughs> and it's going uh, better than my session. I don't like this either. Sometimes that happens in a professional. Right, like, I'm working smiling. so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm working so hard, but it looks like you're just having fun. I'm like, yeah. Maybe OT or speech therapy should be fun. Maybe it should I, be funner. <laughs> I don't know. Like I bring, I bring so much stuff with me. I bring so many props and so many instruments and so many options because I love being able to meet someone exactly where they are and find something that's interesting for them. And then I have to lean on my musicianship and my creativity and my experience to be able well, to and you're turn fun. that into something. Yeah. Yeah, you're bringing yourself, and yourself is fun, and your ideas are fun too. Like those are the most important things. Even if, uh, even if you're, uh, you know, an itinerant music therapist, and you're just like, I'm not lugging that one in today. <laughs> you know, you're staring at the trunk or the hatchback, and you're thinking, Well, I can't do another one of these. Or there's too much snow and slush on the ground. Yep. You know, those those kinds of days. Like I'm not taking that out. All right, that's okay. You're taking yourself in. Yourself is actually the most fun part of you. So, mm-hmm. so you don't have to, you don't have to always do all the props, right? And yourself as an instrument, you know, we can mm-hmm. play on our instrument and do body percussion and sing and chant and, and do all kinds of things without having any tools at all. So it's, yeah, that's the connecting part. It's not yeah. whether you've got the best technology, new fancy thing that was in the AMTA exhibit hall, <laughs> yeah. you know, the year pre, uh, prior. And you're like, I think I could check this on the plane back home <laughs> after conference. Like, yep. Okay. Well, you don't have to worry about that so much. Yep. Just check yourself on the plane. <laughs> well, I'm curious. We haven't talked about this yet, but I know you're, um, you have more experience in early childhood and we've mm-hmm. been talking more about, you know, school age children. I'm curious what you see in the early childhood realm in terms of goals, like maybe what parents are asking to see in therapy or what other therapists are asking to see in music therapy and what kind of goals you're seeing there and how you're, how you're looking at those. 
Yeah, that is interesting because like the difference between the three-year-old and six-year-old and nine-year-old, you know, they're, they're significant differences, you know. Um, but the kind of joke that really isn't a joke is that early childhood is kind of a population and a diagnosis unto itself, you know, because there's so many de- developmental there's so many developmental differences across those different ages and times and cultures, you know, their own personal family culture and then the culture of the actual um, center that they might be at. Um, A lot lot of them want to ascribe themselves to a certain, you know, we're inspired by play therapy, we're Montessori or we're Reggio or whatever the, whatever word they want to put in front of their, center to to get more people to take an interest in them and think like well they're approaching everything from this philosophy but you know ultimately three-year-olds don't care about the philosophy (laughs) they just know like when i come in am i going to be forced to have snack at the same time as everyone else am i going to be forced to you know uh sit down for circle time with everybody else or is there going to kind of be a you know they're they're just going to understand kind of the culture Mm-hmm. and the makeup of all that so i think that's probably a, that's probably a little bit different you know than most of the k-12 stuff that i've done or been involved in or even k-5 really yeah. uh, is that most of that is pull out work whereas early childhood is less pull out and it's more just like everybody's together and you're coming into their environment and you're working in their in their culture and their context so mm-hmm. the better that you can kind of assimilate in there the better better off you are i think one of the one of the biggest things that i learned early on when i was um when I started doing early childhood, not even early childhood music therapy, but also early childhood, you know, like what's traditionally just known as mommy and me classes, but it's just, mm-hmm. you know, caregiver and and uh, and young child classes, usually with mixed ages. I did that through, did that training through music together back in 2005, 2006, something like that, mm-hmm. I think. And um, what I really liked about that philosophy was that uh, there was a big emphasis on figuring out the parent education part of things. Mm-hmm. So like three-year-olds for me are not a hard nut to crack, especially <laughs> when we got music, uh, because it's like, yeah. <laughs> I've got music, I got a parachute, I can do some, I can do some, like you said, body percussion and some small movement things. I can, I got it, you know, mm-hmm. what's more interesting for me is like what's happening the other six days, 23 hours and 15 minutes in that kid's life. Yeah. Um, if it's a once a week session, like I really am kind of curious, uh, how do I, how do I really try to help the parent caregiver be the, be the musical model? How do I help them want to do stuff musically that might help um, with whatever the child is working on at home? Uh, whether those are social things or emotional things or, or, you know, they're all, they're all at some point, they are concerned cognitively. They don't know that they're concerned cognitively, but mm-hmm. everyone, if they're just sitting around talking about kindergarten readiness, like those are the two, those are your two curse words, right? If you're, <laughs> if you're an early childhood music therapist, like I just have to make sure they're ready for kindergarten as if, as if that's just like getting them to the top of the roller coaster. And then as soon as they're in kindergarten, you're down the roller coaster, you know, then everything is <laughs> totally fine. But we set ourselves up culturally for a lot of uh, hard discussions, I think, when when we adopt that kind of a mindset. So instead, instead of that mindset, like let's just get them to kindergarten, kindergarten readiness, instead of that, if we're just thinking like actually right now is when you're figuring out how you can communicate and you're going to connect with your child at home. I mean, I can do it really well because I've been doing it with a lot of different kids, you know, who are, you know, birth to six years old, but you've got this one living with you. Yeah. <laughs> you made that one over there. 
I think you should sing with them. Ah, uh, you don't want to hear me sing. Yeah, maybe. I do actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're. I mean, they could actually be right. Like, it's a, there's a good chance that if you show up on American Idol, I'll turn it off if you sing because I'll go. I don't want to hear somebody yell at you because I don't want. I don't want that negativity. But you know, but I bet that three year old that you made over there in the corner, I bet she wants to hear you sing. So and uh, so actually doing a lot more pushing out or what I'm trying to use the phrase extend the clinic, I think is a real big difference uh, that I've made uh, mm-hmm. par- that is particular to early childhood. It becomes, I think, a little bit less particular as the child gets older and older because right. I, I tend to not to send like parent education notes home or try to communicate with them in middle or high school or when they get to that age level, obviously. But in early childhood, you know, there's a reason why we have IEPs and IFSPs because when it says the F stands for family. Mm-hmm. So whatever that family system is, how do you get in there? And sometimes it's really, really hard. Like I talked about, talked to you about this Long Beach Research Program yeah. Uh, Head Start programs, um, places that are socially, uh, socioeconomically disadvantaged, um, where there's clearly inequities. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's not that I'm putting out there like, "Hey, you've got to download this CD and buy the songbook from me, and and here's a bunch of instruments to use." It's really just like, "Here's a chant we did. If you could just, you know, this is going to go home to you. You know, if you've got a smartphone or." or something yeah. you can click on a link or a free app that you can download and you can listen to this song and we did a version of that but we brought out pots and pans instead to do it mm-hmm. with so i think yeah, i think it's a the formula for early childhood is a lot more parent and caregiver and even early childhood professional the person who's in the room who's with them 7 hours a day right and uh, and less about the 3 year old because like i said 3 year old i can crack that nut you know but it's these grown ups yeah. i got to work <laughs> it's these grown ups i got to work with you know so it's almost like their communication skills their social skills that it's almost like there's an ancillary benefit that those things are going to improve if you focus on the parent child relationship and them having a secure attachment and them knowing how to engage with their child and communicate mm-hmm. with their child and how to help them when they're dysregulated. We do a ton of modeling in our early childhood groups around regulation. That's the word, modeling. Yep. Yeah, the modeling is like so, so important. And then mm-hmm. all the other stuff just falls into place when you're doing those things and you're empowering the parents to help their child and to engage with their child and to meet them where they are. Or at least that's what I'm seeing is mm-hmm. the other stuff is happening because we have this safety and security and we have Music has that predictability and comfort, which is really nice for early childhood. They do like to come back and sing some of the same songs, <laughs> do some of the same things. Yeah. Um, but we're working on all of those skills. Yeah, I saw Frozen. Doing. I get it. Right. <laughs> they want to hear it over and over again. <laughs> yeah. We're in the Disney year figured it Kato, out. So. <laughs> <laughs> and Kato, yeah, that, exactly. Yeah. Disney figured it out. They know mm-hmm. They know exactly uh, how to get a hold of, of a five-year-old's brain. And they do it really well with all those using all those tools too. I don't. There's a couple different terms uh, for it, but I think one that that we've talked about in music together is uh, the spiral of exposure and experimentation. So just thinking like as a child spirals up in age and development and everything, we expose them to certain musical things. But then really, it's about what they do with it, and they'll they'll they need time on their own to experiment with some different musical ideas or or some different concepts, or even just some silly lyrics that they want to mess around with, or instruments. And they need to experiment on their own. And then maybe five weeks later, they come back, and after you're like, I don't think they're listening to me. I don't think they're listening to me. I don't think they're listening to me. You know, Or maybe they don't like the song or whatever. But then all of a sudden, you start a song up, and they're like, I got it. I got it from here, old man. I can show you some new things I've been working on. <laughs> and then they expose it back to you. And you're like, oh, that's interesting. Okay, I 
didn't realize this was all sinking in. I thought you were just staring at me blankly for the last five weeks <laughs> of sessions. Right? But that's been happening in early childhood. That same thing happens, you know, when I've worked with kids on the autism spectrum or mm-hmm. or uh, kids with Down syndrome, whatever it might be, you know. Well, and that's one of the things for me, the reason that I was so interested in moving away this from this language of compliance is more because of my education and experience in trauma-informed care, that really if we pull back and assume that the child or the student or the client is doing the best they can with the tools that they have, and if we believe that all behavior is communication, then it just really frees us up to just focus on the music and the relationship. And then we start to see these benefits happen because we're not viewing it as well, why aren't they doing the thing? Like I sang the song three <laughs> weeks in a row and they're not doing the thing. Like, what's yeah. going on? Um, but I have to keep that in my mind all the time. Like they're doing the best they can with what they have. And if mm. they're not accomplishing it, that's on me. Maybe I made too lofty of a goal, or maybe I'm not making the music accessible enough, or maybe I'm not providing the right kind of cueing for them to feel like they know what's coming and how to interact with the music. Or maybe and, they don't have it yet, or maybe yeah. they're just they're still in the exposure phase, and they're just not ready to experiment with showing you that skill again, mm-hmm. too. So it may not be entirely, you know, you or me or whoever's working with them. They're, it just might be like oh, I'm still working on that, you know. Mm-hmm. But they don't know it. They're kind of subconsciously just working on it. But I think about it all the time, like. You know, there's been so many times, especially when I go back to talking about like when I did mommy me stuff only, Mm -hmm. it's like I've had so many parents that would just come up and like, I, you know, this is like a little kid, like one, one and a half years old or something like that, two year old. Mm -hmm. I don't think he's getting it. You know, we brought him here and we signed up for the class. It's been four weeks and he he likes the egg shakers, but then he doesn't (laughs) do anything else or whatever. And I'm just like, yeah, but I bet you're putting him into that backwards facing car seat in the in the truck, you know, and then you're turning a turning a song on and then you're all heading home, you know, the three of you or four of you, if there's a sibling or whatever. And and that kid is like, bah, 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 and just babbling in the back seat and you're not paying any attention to it because mm-hmm. you don't know to look for it, maybe, you know? Right. And so again, we're trying to educate the parents and caregivers and again, these early childhood professionals. K-12 professionals, paraprofessionals, like there's ways you can find these some of these musical behaviors too. And that's going to be the way that we enter into the relationship when we start going, ah, look at us. We were both musical together just now. <laughs> I didn't, I just didn't notice that he was doing it because he was in the backward facing car seat in a Toyota Tacoma, <laughs> you know, and it was loud. And I didn't see that he was experimenting with, you know, making these, these uh, babbling noises or whatever and give him give him a couple more weeks and maybe he's the kid that's going to be in the middle of the pile just like I need to get one of those scarves. Yep. I've got ideas that I've been working out, <laughs> you know. And those are the moments we live for. Like when we finally see that little thing happen, we're like, mm-hmm. "Look, look, there it is. There's mm-hmm. that thing we were talking to you about. It's starting yeah. to happen." Yeah. Um, that's hard on that's hard for students especially practicum yeah. students, I mean, because they have, you know, what 12 weeks sometimes in a good semester mm-hmm. uh, with, without weather delays and holidays and everything. They've got 12 hours at the most an hour, you know, yeah. to in, over a week or over all these different weeks. And they may not get to see that spark. And that, yeah. that is, that can be really tough, especially when they think I have to push, I have to push, I have to push them to do this thing. Cause I got to take data and I've got to show yeah. how I can take data on a thing. Uh, let's take the pressure off. And yeah. just can you connect with them? Did you show me how you connected with them through you know music? You can do that every one of those 12 weeks. Yeah. 
when we've kind of danced around that question, just, you know, how are we, how do we maintain that balance? You know, we do have to take some data. We do have to have a goal that's measurable and attainable and, and time-based and all of those things, because a lot of our jobs depend on it. You know, we have Mm -hmm. funding that dictates that we submit documentation every so often, um, or we're applying for a grant to pay for services, or we have a parent who's expecting their child to start communicating in six weeks or something like that, or to have fewer tantrums within a few weeks of starting music therapy. And mm-hmm. so do you have any words of advice on that? Like, how do we how do we find that balance of writing a goal that's going to work, um, but still being able to have that focus of focusing on the music and focusing on the relationship? Yeah, yeah. So it's still, it still does come down to see if you can see if you can create that connection first because you won't be you you flat out will not be able to get to it unless you are the most strict behaviorist and the dirty little <laughs> secret of behaviorism is like behaviorism only works if every single other adult in that kid's life is doing the exact same thing that you are doing so mm-hmm. like this is this is it kind of turns into an all or nothing proposition at a certain point so if you are going to put your if you're going to put your eggs in that behaviorism basket just make mm-hmm. sure you understand like it's it's not just you it's got to be every single person you know, in a 24 hour, a 24 hour cycle, seven days a week, who's doing this behavioral thing. And then you've just created a little automaton who's just doing the thing that you want so that they can hear their favorite song or get the M&M or whatever it is. So again, the awareness at the beginning of the cycle to make sure to like you decide, I know that that's on this. I know that's one of the options to me. Do I understand why that's not the best option Mm -hmm. for for the the child and i also understand is this the best thing for me or is this the best thing for the kid or the the kid's teacher or whatever it might be too Mm -hmm. and then yes and then hopefully you make the decision okay and i'm going to get to that connection point um and then see if you can actually figure out ways that the objective will fit as an addendum onto the musical behaviors that they're already doing. Mm -hmm. If you can find ways that the child is already doing something musical Mm -hmm. um, and then go, oh, you know what's actually interesting about this is that something musical that's happening is that this child is sustaining attention for this period of time and because I started strumming a muted sound on my guitar or playing a little tinkle cue on my piano, um, or on a glockenspiel or whatever, you know, figure out what your whatever your musical cue is going to be in a bunch of sustained um, music making. Then they change instruments, and then you go, all right, well, it's, that's more important than they they know that I'm singing two different songs or that they picked up two different instruments. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to talk about the instruments, but I can. I am going to think to myself, wait a minute, that is a cognitive goal that is sustained or selective attention, right. and I can explain how many times they're going to select for that attention when the child is just like, I won the game. Right. <laughs> I won the game that uh, I won the instrument changing game. <laughs> yeah. And that's all that the child actually cares about or the the person whoever it is, that's what they care about, you know. Absolutely. Yeah, helping them like we've talked about this multiple times now, helping the parent or the caregiver <laughs> or the teacher or whomever to see what's happening and to help them make the connection to what skill is actually developing in that moment or emerging in that moment. Mm-hmm. Um I'm curious what you tell your students when maybe they bring in a goal or objective that they've written for a session and it's very clear that they're not quite hitting the mark. Like what kind of questions mm-hmm. are you asking in that moment to help them figure out what they're actually trying to, to do, what need they're yeah. trying to meet? Well, one of them is the, one of them's the one that we came up with at, you know, earlier in this conversation too, is like, is that for you or is that for them? Like, yeah. are you sure that that's just something that you want to see them do? 
um, because that's what you think the music should be do because that's the lyric of the song that you wrote or that's the lyric of the song that you found online, you know, last night at two in the morning before the, before the pre-session or whatever it is. Yep. So that's an important first question. And the second one is like, um, are you sure that there isn't, it's like, uh, you know, when we learned fractions, you learn, you learn what two twelfths is and you're like, mm, that's not as low as it can go. I think I can deduce or I can reduce that fraction down to one sixth yep. or, you know, two fourths is one half. Like the same thing happens in objective writing. And so when I see like, you know, we'll follow three directions, student will follow three directions or client will be able to whatever. Then I go, is it really following directions? Because I think that's actually two different things. I think, I think that's reducible down to saying, did they sustain attention long enough to actually take in the direction you're giving them? Are you going to give them the direction as clear and concise as possible? Are you going to give them even a, a fighting chance at getting that direction? Mm-hmm. And then, on, and then, secondly, did you motivate them to want to do the direction? I can motivate them with a parachute or, or with egg shakers or something like that. But did you mot- motivate them to want to stop doing the movement that you were just doing um, because it's fun, or because they get to lead later, and that child leadership is kind of fun because then they get to control you, and you can mm-hmm. go back and forth with this cat and mouse game and have a lot more fun with it. Um, even though, again, you know, you're not you don't have a smart objective of, you know, we'll play a cat and mouse game with me starting and stopping instruments three times every session mm-hmm. and all the other mumbo jumbo that we put in our objectives. <laughs> but the more important thing there is like, I don't, I didn't, you know, following directions is two twelfths, but you know, sustaining attention. There we go. That's one sixth. That's the reducible. Mm-hmm. Can I really break it down a little bit further than that? Mm-hmm. So I truly understand what the, what the objective or the thing that you want them to do is the skill. Yeah. Well, and what, what level of attention do they need to have to get to the next level of attention? Like if you have a joint attention goal, but you don't mm. have any sustained attention, mm. you know, you have to also think about like, wait, I need to go even further back. Like they can't be doing this. And that's something that happens a lot in the schools is we'll see a goal for something like joint attention. Mm. And then when we observe them, we're like, they are nowhere close to that. <laughs> no. And that might've been a, yeah, that might've been a misunderstanding of you know, whatever the thing is, whether it's right. intention or whatever, by somebody else who, who's on the IEP team or pumped it into a computer system or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. And there's no judgment on that. Everyone, you no. know, nobody's, nobody's got it perfect, but uh, it might just be something to observe and just draw attention to. Right. And really, if you're still providing trials for building attention mm-hmm. skills and you're still collecting data on those trials, you're still working towards that goal, but you can pull it back to the beginning and focus mm-hmm. on those early attention skills that they haven't yet acquired and get that foundation laid and then continue working in that direction and providing those observations of like, here's, here's what I'm seeing. And here's where I'm starting right now. I'm meeting the student where they are, and this is what we're working on. And hopefully mm-hmm. over time, we're going to get a little bit closer to that goal that's on the IEP. Cause we can't change that for a while. It's going to be there, but <laughs> You know. Yeah, that's well that's well said, especially drawing it back to the IEP, you know, the the standard that we have to figure out how we're going to look at this this thing, this IEP, this mm-hmm. whatever it is and, and whatever it means to us in our own lives, you know, it, it you can bet that it means far less to that child, <laughs> especially for children. You know, they oh, are yeah. like, I have no interest in this. Uh when can I have some Fritos? <laughs> like <laughs> they're they're not interested in that. So how are you going to make a connection from this document that's been set up this way? Mm-hmm. Again, that is supposed to be individualized, but that is clearly operating in this in a systemic environment. 
and hopefully giving yourself again the grace to understand like oof this is this is set up against me this is really hard <laughs> mm-hmm. how do i do this yeah and it's going back to that idea of like kindergarten readiness it's such a balance to find because for parents who have children who are neurodivergent especially they're thinking about their child's trajectory from early childhood on that if they mm-hmm. don't learn how to manage um their emotions, how to regulate themselves, how to follow a routine and a schedule, they're not going to be able to be in a general classroom. They're going to be separated into a different classroom. And and how, a lot of how can you not have empathy for that fear that, that a parent right. would have? Absolutely. Who couldn't of. have that? Absolutely. And that means that they're coming to you from a place of fear. So can you recognize that instead of seeing it as a, as kind of a threat, like you better do the, you better get them complying, you know, because right. this is what I'm afraid of. Yeah. It's been really it's just been so exciting for us. And we're learning so much at our practice by throwing out our assessment and totally starting over with it. And in our sessions, we're really focusing on doing the work, but then providing tools and resources for the families of, we tried this breathing game, or we tried this grounding drumming activity, and here's how you can do it at home. And we're finding that when we do this first, before we do anything else, that they're able to sit and do a five minute activity with us. If we don't try to get right into the cognitive work and we really spend time with them at the beginning of the session and just constantly providing education and some really accessible resources for them to help their child to regulate at home and in the community and to be able to focus on an activity that they're doing together with their child. And Mm -hmm. we're seeing some really amazing progress by doing that and really thinking about that with each and every client yeah if your goal is to get up and go to the gym and work out (laughs) and you just wake up and you do not go to the gym immediately and you just kind of wander around your house in a haze at 5 30 in the morning and you're like okay um brush my teeth now Uh, maybe later right now i will eat uh maybe i shouldn't should i have a shake i don't know but if you don't do the exact this and then that it's okay Still got right. to the gym by 535 or whatever it is, you know, but people have to understand like, you know, we're not all, not all of us are doing exactly the order of things mm-hmm. that need to be done to say that we were successful at them. Right. Yeah. And I, I think that what we're also learning is the more education we're providing upfront about what the therapeutic prog- process actually looks like mm-hmm. and what progress can look like for clients and students is also helping a lot because parents come in with expectations of what's going to happen in therapy and they're all binary really, expectations. Yes. It's either going to work or it's not. Yes. They're always really surprised when there's regression or something like that halfway through. They're like, wait a minute, we've been doing this for five weeks and mm-hmm. now I'm seeing all these old behaviors coming up that I thought we were all done with. That sounds like dieting and exercise again. Right, exactly. It? That's like, the human does condition. that ever happen? Do you ever, do you ever start eating really well? And then all of a sudden you're like, hmm, I don't do salads on Mondays anymore. I'm going to change my, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's, I'm learning a lot right now and I'm really enjoying it actually. Just really taking a hard look at all the clients we're serving and how can we help to bridge that gap and provide that education so that we can protect that space of music therapy to focus on the music and focus on the relationship and trust the process that that's going to bring about the changes that we're hoping for, for that person 
and the systems that we do have to deal with, okay, we'll figure yeah. out how to work within those systems because we can't change those systems right now, mm. but we can continue to do really excellent work and we can demonstrate our strong relationship with our clients. And hopefully that translates to other people and they see the benefit of, of doing the work in that way. I think that's the motto right there. Trust the process. Thank you for being willing to talk with me today and share your thoughts because it's been really educational and inspiring. And I'm going to go back and listen to this a few times to get all of the good stuff out of it to take with me into my clinical work. Well, it's been my pleasure to, to, to talk with you about it and equally inspiring and educational for me. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you for joining us for this very special conversation today. We look forward to sharing even more interviews and conversations in the future. Please go to our show notes for a list of previous episodes of the Music Therapy and Beyond podcast to further your learning on this topic. We look forward to sharing more with you next week. Until next time. For show notes and resources in today's episode and all episodes, head to our website, musictherapyandbeyond.com. Reach out to us at musictherapyandbeyond at gmail.com and follow us on social media to stay up to date on all the content and announcements. We'll see you next time.